Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. I hope you have your Bible with you. If you don't, please feel free to use a Bible underneath the uh, chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please see me after church and I'll be glad to give you one as our gift to you. And this morning we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We've made our way as far as chapter 7, verse 1. And let's read our text together. And after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. As Jesus concluded the Sermon of the Mount, which we believe is given to us by Luke here in chapter 6. He then proceeded to make his way to the northeastern area of the Sea of Galilee, where there were a set of about 200 small villages, and one of the larger villages there in that area was the city of Capernaum, about 20,000 in size. And there Jesus did many of the miracles recorded for us in the Gospels. And as a result, the testimony, the witness, the, uh, the rumors and the understandings of Jesus began to permeate through the entire culture. Even to the point where a Roman centurion got word that Jesus was in the area. The Roman centurion was a man who was in charge of about a hundred Roman soldiers. And the centurion undoubtedly had heard of the whispers and the, the chatter and the conversations in the marketplace there in Capernaum of this one named Jesus, who was doing all kinds of extraordinary things. For he was feeding the 5,000, he was healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons healed a paraplegic that was there in Capernaum. Even a woman who reached out 
in her very last efforts to cease a flow of blood that she had contended with for years was healed at the moment she touched the rim of his garment. The centurion in Capernaum had a very unusual relationship with the Jewish people. He apparently was extremely kind to them. Not only was he a friend to the Jewish people, now understand, he was an occupier of the Jewish land. The Romans were oppressing the Jewish people, treating them harshly in many, many, uh, many, many ways. The Jewish people were being killed and slaughtered by the Romans to continue to suppress any type of insurrection that would occur there either in Jerusalem or in Israel. However, in this particular case, this man had befriended the Jewish people to the point of allowing them to and insisting them in building their synagogue. And throughout the Bible, the Bible gives us these glimpses of the centurions in a very favorable light. For there was Cornelius in the book of Acts who was the first to hear Peter preach the gospel, one of the first Gentiles to receive the gospel, and to one of the first individuals to experience the saving faith that comes through Jesus Christ. There was a centurion who stood at the foot of Jesus' cross and said, Behold the man, for this is truly the Son of God. And then we have this individual who again befriended the Jewish people and also assisted in the building of their synagogue. A centurion was required to be a man of impeccable character in the Roman Empire. Often it was by birth, and this was the farthest one could go in the Roman army, uh, just simply enlisting, uh, simply being uh, drafted into the Roman Empire, uh, their, their legions. This was as high as one could go. But to get to this point, they had to be of extraordinary character. And this individual appears to be just that, who believed that befriending the people would assist him in controlling any kind of insurrection or uprising in a greater fashion than trying to suppress it militarily. For Capernaum was a hot spot of commerce, trade, fishing. It was where the Romans collected the majority of their taxes in that area. And yet this particular centurion was able to approach the Jewish elders and have them approach Jesus on his behalf. What's extraordinary to me in this whole account is that if a servant of a Roman centurion became ill to the point of death, it was the duty of the centurion to kill his servant. It was a great liability to allow the servant to remain alive because who knows what the servant would have heard in the hearing of the centurion's conversations during the course of his, his uh, servanthood of that individual. 
It is interesting to me that the centurion valued, notice the word that is used there by Luke, that he valued his servant in such a high regard. The word in the Greek is not a word that carries along with a great affection. But this man meant a great deal to the centurion, and therefore he would rather see him healed than to have to kill him on his deathbed. So the centurion reaches out to Jesus, first through the elders there in Capernaum, And verse 2 tells us very clearly, now a centurion had a servant. The word servant there is somewhat misleading. The the role of the servant in the centurion home would be that more of a slave, most likely a captive of one of the regions in which the Roman Empire occupied, who was sick at the point of death. Terminal illness is used there in the word sick. This was more than just something minor. It was something significant. And notice then in verse 2, Luke also tells us that he was highly valued by him, and that is referring to the centurion. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. It's difficult for us in our culture today to to sometimes understand what is happening in the text of the Scriptures culturally. But let us understand that for this centurion to make a request of the elders of the Jews in the manner in which he did showed a vulnerability within the centurion. And the centurions were supposed to be individuals that were of course, fortified by the experiences of life. Some would call them hardened by the experiences of life. Showing emotion or vulnerability was not something that you would see in the life of a centurion in that time. When the centurion made the proclamation that he was observing the death of the Son of God, that phrase that the centurion used was to parallel the claims of the Roman emperor at that time who claimed to be the Son of God. And the centurion was saying, no, no, it's not the emperor of Rome who's truly the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Extraordinary statement to be made by him. But here, the vulnerability, the humility to ask for help from the Jewish people, ones in whom you are oppressing, you're occupying their land, you have slaughtered their people, you were hated by most at best. And yet, due to this value of his relationship with his servant, he was willing to do just that. And when, verse 4, they came to Jesus, that is the elders, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you to do this for him, for he loves our nation. What an extraordinary thing to say. I've never heard a prisoner at Cook County 
say, oh, you know, those guards really love us. I've never heard that. But here, the relationship between the centurion and the elders of the Jews were so significant that they could actually testify to Jesus that he loves the nation of Israel. What an extraordinary thing to see take place. And when they had heard this, he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. Verse 6, And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion knew well enough that a Jewish person was not able to enter into the home of a Gentile. And this is really one of the significant points of Luke including this particular account to the, in the recipient of the letter, which was Theophilus, who I believe was the Greek uh, owner of Luke. Now, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but I believe Luke was in the servitude of Theophilus as his physician. That's the way physicians were employed in that culture. They were part of the staff. Luke, therefore, became a Christian, and wanted to document for Theophilus everything that Jesus had done before and after his crucifixion and resurrection. And this, of course, led to Luke-Acts, the two books that are written by Luke in our New Testament. And so as Luke is writing this, he wants Theophilus, who is a Gentile, to know and to understand that there was an affectionate relationship between Jews and Gentiles. The vast majority of Jewish people hated the Gentile culture. They believed that any kind of interaction with Gentiles would defile them before God. When the Jewish priests used to walk up and down the streets of Jerusalem, they used to hold their robes tightly to their bodies to guarantee that the robes would not rub against the the, uh, Gentiles who may be around. And so there was this incredible division between the Jewish and Gentile people at that time. You know, the Jewish people used to pray, thank you, Lord, that I'm not either a woman or a Gentile. And of course, that's what the men prayed. They hated the Gentiles. But here, Luke includes for Theophilus the understanding that there was a relationship between these two. Now, please understand this. This was the civil rights issue of that era, the relationship between Jew and Gentile. And if you read through the book of Acts, you understand that when Gentiles started to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the integration of the Gentiles and Jewish individuals under the head of Christ in the church was a very difficult union and was very troublesome and problematic and much discussion and writings had to take place to try to help seal that that relationship between Jew and Gentile because many Jewish people felt like, okay, we don't mind now including the Gentiles into this new covenant that Christ has created, but let them become Jews first, including circumcision, 
Now, I don't know about you, but approaching someone in their 30s and who's just become a Christian, and then you say to them, listen, before you can truly be saved, you have to be circumcised. That'll show commitment, right? That'll show a real commitment to Christ. But of course, this was negated by the writings of Paul and also Peter, that this was not the case. They did not have to become Jews first. This was a very difficult relationship. It was a religious racism that is equal to anything that we see today, if not greater. And yet, in this one case, in this one relationship, there was that extraordinary relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Theophilus is reading this. But not only is there this relationship between the Jew and the Gentiles in this extraordinary fashion, notice what takes place next. For the centurion knew that Jesus couldn't come into his home without therefore be considering defiled by the Jewish people. So he waves the Lord off. Who knows if the centurion even wanted the Lord to come into his house. He just wanted his servant to be healed. And notice what he says here in verse 6. Jesus went to them. He was not far off from the house. The centurion then sent friends out. Now, these were all Gentiles, saying to him, Lord. And in this case, it's not Lord uh, identifying him as Messiah. It's Lord as sir or master. Do not trouble yourself. Do not go out of your way. Don't, Don't complicate your life by coming into our house. That's what he's saying here. For I am not worthy, and they're speaking on behalf of the centurion, to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but simply say the word and let my servant be healed. All you have to do is from where you are at, just say that my servant is healed, and that's sufficient. Why? Because verse 8 For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, he comes. And to my servant, I say, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. The first aspect of this great faith, or such faith, is the fact that that the centurion was able to have this faith simply based on the limited knowledge that he had of Jesus. We don't know if the centurion ever truly heard Jesus preach, but undoubtedly he heard of all of the miracles that were wrought at the hands of Jesus Christ. And by acknowledging Jesus' authority... It is more than just saying his placement of authority and the subjection of disease and death underneath him. His understanding of the authority of Jesus was to understand in his limited capabilities and and capacities who Jesus was. And as a result, it was sufficient for the centurion to simply be given the word of Jesus to know that his servant was going to be healed or would be healed. Faith is a tremendous subject in the Christian community today. The reason there is a great confusion about faith today is because we inadvertently 
use three different words to kind of describe and to define what faith means. And those three words are also found in the Bible. The three words that I'm about to give you have a significantly different definition in biblical times than they do in our culture today. And those three words are believe, know, and faith. Now, we see in the scriptures that they're often used interchangeably. That is because in that culture they had greater they had a greater resemblance to one another than they do today. Today people question our faith in God. How can you have faith in God? The question really is their understanding of what faith is. And let me articulate it by an illustration that I created to help individuals see the difference between these three three words in our culture today and the comparison of these three words in our biblical context in Scripture. Let's say that you are new to our area. And you ask me, you know, is there a hiking path in the area? And I said, oh yeah, there's a really neat hiking path uh, that is is in our area. And once you get to a certain distance, you're going to find a bridge that's going to cross a a ravine and it's gorgeous. Oh, there's a bridge that I can cross. Yes, I believe that there is a bridge that you can cross. I'm using the word believe there as simply knowing that there's the possibility of a bridge being there, okay? But if they were then to ask me, have you seen it for yourself? Oh, no, I haven't seen it for myself. So therefore they would say, oh, so you don't know if that bridge is there. No, I don't know if that bridge is there, but I believe it's there, Uh, but I don't know until I see it myself, then I can say, I know that that bridge is there. If they were then to further qualify the question and say, well, can I cross it safely? Because I haven't seen it, and because I don't know it's there, and because I haven't crossed it, I cannot say to them with certainty, yeah, I have faith that you can cross it. In each one of these illustrations, you see that in our culture today, We can talk about believing in something without seeing it. We can talk about knowing something's there without trying it. But when it comes to this word faith, and I did this purposely for our example this morning, and I hope I'm not confusing you. When it comes to faith, the biblical understanding of faith is that faith is always demonstrated by an act that precedes it. Does that make sense? If I have faith... Once I believe that that bridge is there and then I see that that bridge is there, the biblical understanding of faith is going to lead me to take a step onto that bridge and cross it. In the Bible, these words do not have that grade of disparity within them. They don't have that discrepancy within them. But in our culture, we do today. The reason I say it this way is because The Bible tells us clearly that faith that is genuine faith is acted upon. Belief that is genuine belief is acted upon. The Bible does not make a uh, a, uh, 
place for an individual who says, yes, I believe in something and does not act upon it. If someone in the Bible were to say, yes, I believe something and not act upon it, the Bible would question, do you really then believe what you say you believe? And this is imperative for our conversation about faith today. Now, I say that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are capable of interacting with God in a manner of faith that allows us to take action. Well, I've never seen God, but I know God. And because I know God, I am then faithful to trust God and the promises that he has made to me. And I see within the centurion's life on the simple information in which he had at that moment that he was able to do the same thing. And that information was, number one, the understanding of Jesus' authority. Understanding who Jesus is. Our faith begins with the understanding of who God is. Well, how do we learn who God is through his word? And that is the second element to the faith of the centurion. Because I know who you are, just give me your word, and that's sufficient for me. That's what he is saying here. This is what Jesus marveled at. This centurion was a Gentile acting on the limited information that he had, and yet Jesus concludes his conversation at this moment by saying, I haven't even seen faith like this in Israel, and Israel has been with me from the beginning. I brought them out of Egypt. I helped them cross the Red Sea. I I took them through the wilderness. I planted them in their land. I brought them out of their land. I brought them back to their land. I have shown myself faithful and strong time and time again, and yet they still cannot seem to trust me. And that's the real element of faith that we must discuss. Trust is a big word today. It's been rightfully said that it takes 30 years to truly learn to trust someone. It takes 30 seconds to lose that trust in someone. But as I grow as a Christian and I understand who God is, his character through his word, therefore taking the promises that he's directly made to me, and applying them properly and appropriately, I can be guaranteed that he is faithful to perform that in which he has promised to me. Because number one, I know who he is. And number two, I can take him at his word. Let me demonstrate this for you through the Bible quickly, if I may. We're going to take a little journey through the entire Old Testament right now. No. Let's begin in Jeremiah 23 and 24. Chapter 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The most valuable thing we can boast in is our knowing of who God is. Many struggle trusting the Lord on a daily basis due to the simple fact that they really don't understand who God is. And when they don't fully understand who God is, it's very difficult to trust Him as God would have you to trust Him. That's why He gave us the 66 books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that we may read and understand and know the God in whom we serve and His Son, Christ Jesus. To understand who He is and to fall in love with Him and therefore to be able to trust Him. It's not only knowing who He is, but knowing that He is capable of performing the things that He has made promise to you through His Word. Now, if we choose not to read the Word of God, I believe that we really just then don't understand who God is. Many Christians believe that they can simply reduce their knowledge of God to their personal experiences in life. I feel that that's very short-sighted because God has given us a special revelation through the Word of God of Himself. God has shown you a history, not only a history, but a future in Him. Your personal life experiences will not give you that perspective in life. It's only through the Word of God that you can understand, yes, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same from the beginning to the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. I understand now what He is doing because I understand the overall narrative of the Bible. I understand why we are living in the culture that we're living in. I understand what the uh, period before His return is going to look like, etc., because God has told me up front beforehand through his word. There's no substitute for reading his word. There is none. Take a little time each and every day and work through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. A lot of people ask me, well, where do I start? Where do I start reading when I go to read the Bible? And I've often wondered about that question because I've never been to a library, a library and have a librarian ask that question. Listen, I got the new Dr. Seuss book. I've been waiting for it. This follow-up to Green Eggs and Ham, I've been waited with bated breath for years on this one. Now, but I'm a little confused. I finally got the book now, And now I can see how it all ends. Does it end in an omelet? Where do we go from here? But I just don't know where to start reading. The librarian would look at that individual and say, like, give me your card back. There's got to be some basic qualifications before we give out a library card. If you're troubled, start with Genesis and read all the way through. I know when you get to Leviticus, it's hard. It's like going down a dry water slide at times, but get through it. Because Leviticus will open your eyes to the reality of all that Christ has done for us on the cross. And just keep reading. Read about the judges. Read about the kings. You know, if you like a roller coaster ride, read 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings all in one sitting. You will be nauseous by the time you're done. Why do I say that? Because when the king was good, they were up here. And then when the king was bad, they were down here. And then when the king was good, they were up here. And then 
by the time you're done, you're like, holy cow. But then go through the Psalms. Then learn from the wisdom of the Proverbs. Listen to the cries of the major prophets and the minor prophets, especially in our day and culture today. Listen to Jeremiah lament as he's sitting in a cage, a cage, a cave, overseeing the ruins of Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations, and he's just weeping. It didn't have to be this way, he says. But our hardness of heart provoked God to this. Come to the last book of the Old Testament, the Italian prophet Malachi. And listen to Malachi as he pleads and predicts the coming of the Messiah. And then hear those words of one crying out in the wilderness 400 years later, and then the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then what the apostles did after his ascension. Then you get to the book of Revelation, and by that time you're so confused, it's, you know, you look at it and say, what's going on here? But you understand this one point the Lord wins in the end. But then you get the overall narrative of it all. And even a book like Revelation can be understood by you. Don't negate your ability to understand God's word just because you don't think that you can comprehend it or understand it. You have the author of the book in your heart as a believer in Jesus Christ, so read it with him. In high school, I made the mistake of really acing out on tests placing me in senior uh, classes. Um, I aced the test, thought it was going to get me out of classes, but it put me into AP classes. And one of those classes was English literature. Now, that is an oxymoron. Why? Because the writers who write in English did not write in English at all. These are those arts, these and this and this and this and everything else. And I, couldn't, I was reading these, you know, Shakespeare and others, and I'm like, I don't have a clue what they're trying to say. I would love to be able to get Shakespeare on the line right now and saying, listen, this whole Macbeth thing, a little creepy, but let's talk about it. But you have that privilege as the Holy Spirit resides in you to pray and to ask, Lord, help me to understand your word. And you know what he'll do? He'll help you to understand his word. Notice with me in Philippians, as Paul goes on with this, he says, after coming to Christ, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice, he starts out with knowing, he ends with faith. That I may know him, oh, isn't that interesting, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then, of course, Jesus himself said this, And this is eternal life, that, you, that they know you. He's speaking of the Father here, John 17. The only true God and Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. God is knowable. The great... 
uh, agnostic question of our age today is, is there a God and is that God knowable? I say to you that there is a God and he is completely knowable through his word. And this is the foundation of your faith to allow you to trust God, to move you to action in your Christian life. It begins by knowing who God is. But number two, notice that the centurion says, just give me your word. Can we count on the Bible being God's word? For Numbers 23, 19 states this, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? And or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The word in which I have given to you, I promise to fulfill before you. Notice how Paul speaks of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Notice this, fully convinced that what God was able to do, I'm sorry, that God was able to do what he had promised. The psalmist writes for us and he says this, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. The New King James, I believe, does a better job at rendering the Hebrew, and I want to give this to you also. I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. And that's what he is saying here. I have given you my word, and that word can be trusted. I've magnified it, I've exalted it above my own name so that you may be confident that that which I have said to you, not only do I mean to keep towards you, but I'm able to uh, perform that which I have promised to you. And this is what the centurion based his faith upon. And he had such a small, limited knowledge of God. And he had such a small sample size of the word of God. And yet that was sufficient for him to say to the Lord, just give your word and it'll be done. For I understand authority. If I say go, I know he will go. If I say come, I know he will come. If I say to do it, I know he will do it. Just give me your word, Lord. And I know that my servant is healed. And Jesus turns to the crowd at that moment and he marvels with amazement. And he says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. But here this Gentile comes to me in such a manner with such faith. And it's a simplistic faith. It's, it's a childlike faith. Lord, if you say it, I believe it. I trust it, Lord. And before his servants even came home, the servant was healed. That's miraculous. That's remarkable. That's our God. We do not place our faith and trust blindly. 
We have a Bible that tells us that we may know who God is. We have the Word of God that has made promises to us that we can be guaranteed that He will fulfill because He's able to perform the promises in which He has made to us. And therefore, in that alone can I have faith. And that faith will grow. That faith will waver at times. That faith will seem to elude us and doubt creep in at other times. But even at those moments of weakness, this is our God. He says, you know, when you're faithless, I am faithful. When you are weak, I'm strong. He knows how fragile we are. One of the most honest statements in the Gospels is, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief, right? In fact, Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the Jewish people in Mark 6.6, but he marveled at the belief of the Gentile here in Luke 7.9. Amazed by it. But it is a process in which we grow into. Now, two points may I in closing. One, One point is this. When we base our faith on the Word of God, let us make sure that we are properly applying the Word of God accurately to our circumstances and situations. Let us not fabricate a scenario and then say, Lord, based on this faulty understanding of these verses, I then, you know, trust that you're going to do great and powerful things. Because remember, God is faithful to His Word. But that word has a context. That word has an application. That word is often directed towards a certain group of people that it may not be appropriate for us to assume in our own personal lives. This is why knowing the Bible is so important. Because you can see how then individuals would place their faith on false expectations. And then when God doesn't come through because he never promised that he would, they say, God let me down. No, God didn't let you down. You looked at the verses incorrectly. We all do that at times. But the second thing I want to leave you with too is that there's a third case to be made here. There's a third point to be made. Is that the faith that often leads to action is embraced through humility. Notice the centurion was not a prideful man but was willing to show vulnerability, was willing to go out and risk his reputation amongst that culture by asking the Jewish elders and then having his friends go out and meet Jesus as he sees Jesus approaching his house undoubtedly. But that centurion placed himself in a perfect position. I have nowhere else to go. There's nothing that I can do about it. I can't save my servant. I must call on someone else to do it. And that required humility. That required him to become vulnerable at that moment. Often I notice that prideful people have the hardest time walking by faith with the Lord because they always try to continuously bring things back into their own hands and their own ability. Prideful people also have a tendency to gauge their circumstances and the difficulties of their circumstances by their own personal ability. And therefore, they assume that God is confound to that same limitation that they are. How are we ever going to get past this, you know? 
And because they're judging their circumstances simply based on their own personal ability, they then throw up a prayer to God saying, God, this is way too big even for you. Really? Either you've made that problem way too big or you've made God way too small. But the centurion was willing in both cases to say, this is out of my hands. I cannot effectually do this, but you can. And just give me the word and I will believe it. I'd like to close with these words, if I may. By one of my favorite authors, Pastor Warren Worsby. He says, faith, that is, simple belief, expresses itself concretely. Numerous pictures provided in Jesus' ministry are illustrative of that. They show that faith acted. Faith that the recogni- with the recognition and the persuasion that God had something to offer that one must receive and embrace. So in Jesus' miracles, individuals moved to receive what he had offered. Faith is active, not passive. It understands, receives, and embraces. The one who welcomes God's message receives what God offers and responds to the gospel. He or she acknowledges that God, through Jesus Christ, has dealt with the effects of sin and that only He can provide what is needed to reverse sin's presence and eradicate its penalty. It's only by faith. That faith takes us into the step of believing that God can save us initially by the grace in which he's extended through us, to us through Jesus Christ. But one had said accurately, he said, many have an easy time believing in God, but many have a very difficult time believing God. Because it's that same faith that then continues us after that point, walking with him in trust, allowing our actions to reflect that in which we say we believe trusting God to provide on his promises and to perform that which he has promised to us on a daily basis. That's the trust and faith that God wants us to have in him. That not only brings us to the point where we collapse before him and saying, Lord, I cannot save myself, only you through grace, by faith can I be saved. But also then embracing the promises that he has made to us through the faith that we grow in. The disciples came to Jesus and said, oh, Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus wasn't really worried about the size of their faith, but the quality of their faith. He says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be removed, and it would be removed. See, it wasn't the size of the faith that mattered. It was the presence of faith and who that faith is placed in that matters. My faith in God can be, be stretched, it can be challenged, it can be, you know, um, tensed, it can be, uh, you know, um, weakened at times, but who God is cannot be, right? And even when I waver at moments, God says, when you are faithless, I am faithful. What a story of the centurion. What limited understanding he had, but he trusted that which he knew. He trusted the word of God 
And as a result, his servant was healed.